Hi, I'm Alex Buffman with Below the Radar, and you're listening to The Power of Disability with your host, community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alan Mansky. This is a six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. The Power of Disability features interviews with special guests centering in the contributions of people with disabilities. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm Al Edmansky, and this is the Power of Disability podcast. In this series, we highlight what history has overlooked. They've overlooked the contributions of people with disabilities, or they've separated their disability from their contributions. Today's Power of Disability guest is longtime friend, Barb Good. Barb is one of more than 100 people that I profiled in my latest book, The Power of Disabilities, 10 Lessons for Surviving, Thriving, and Changing the World. Welcome, Barb. Thank you for having me, Al. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Can I tell people a little bit about you? We may have to R-rate it. (laughs) (laughs) We may have to R-rate it. Okay. (laughs) I like that. I'm such a big fan that, you know, I could go on for a long time, but I want people to know that you are seen by people around the world as the builder and the leader of the modern day disability movement. You're a pioneer. You specialize in breaking stereotypes. People put your contributions right up there with people like Rick Hansen, Terry Fox, and Michael J. Fox here in British Columbia. You're a founding member of People First, a worldwide movement of people with learning disabilities and developmental disabilities who are tired of being labeled and who want to speak for themselves. In 1992, you addressed the UN General Assembly. You're an author, your memoirs, A Good Life, Memoirs of a Disability Rights Activist is, in my view, a really important contribution to literature and to social change. People may not know this about you, but you're also the person with the largest number of contacts (laughs) in your phone book of anybody I know, and you never forget a person's birthday. Barb, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Al. So you're joining us from your home in Burnaby. And you've got your friend and working partner, Aaron, beside you. Now, I don't know if you want to describe Aaron. I know you do a lot of work together, a lot of consulting together. Do you have a description for him? (laughs) Other than we have the same birthday, and he's three years younger, and he has more gray hair than I do. (laughs) There you go. Okay. <laughs> What's your secret? Now, I think there's something else about the two of you that people may not know that I discovered is that you taught Aaron's son that it was okay to have ice cream for dinner as a main course, not for dessert, but as the main course. Is that true? Yes, it's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The big, big parenting lesson. Yeah. So maybe that's why he's here is that he's actually here because he wants to keep his eye on you. (laughs) Barb, I want to get to some of the work that you've done and that you're still doing because you've accomplished so much. But before I do that, I'd like people to get to know you a little bit. 
better. And so you've heard how I described you, but you know, how would you describe yourself? If somebody asked you, can you describe yourself in a couple of sentences? What would you say? What would you like people, you know, to know about you? I'm independent as much as I can, but with the pandemic, it's been more difficult to be independent. I like to be able to help people as much as I can. That's about it. Okay. In your memoir, you talk about growing up, about your mom and your dad. I think you had a very special relationship with your dad. And your book is full of recipes as well. So were you a family that cooked a lot together? Or are these just memories that come forward through food? I guess, like, I remember very clearly that dad would do more cooking than mom because she wasn't well half the time. And I think for me, two or three years, well, mom was having some health issues. In my later years, she was put in a kind of a nursing home. And I can remember that I would spend an hour each way to go and visit her from Vernon Beach in North Bend. And I remember very clearly on Sundays or Saturdays, I would go over to see dad. We had constant talks all the time. And I can remember him saying to me that he wanted to make his specialty and he had a bread maker and he would make hamburger buns. And I would make, like he would make turkey burgers. And if they weren't the right size, he would take my hand and go, this is the way you do it. And I have that memory in this, the recipe in my book, but I can remember him very clearly doing that. And cooking, it just, we became very close after mom left. And it just gets me emotional sometimes, but I could talk to him about almost anything. Barb, as we're going through this conversation, we're gonna be using terminology that some people may not be familiar with. For example, self-advocacy. We use that word all the time or those two words all the time, but not everybody does. Could you describe what self-advocacy is? What would you want the kind of average person to know about self-advocacy? That's not an easy explanation. Mm -hmm. I guess someone that has a learning disability or I know other self-advocates, I explain it one way, and you could talk to, say, George Smith down the street, and he might say it differently. And that, you know, in my mind, that's fine. But, you know, we're all people, and we're all trying to do the same thing. But for me, it's someone with a learning disability and someone learning or has been talking for themselves and trying to educate people and help themselves. 
Okay. In your book, you said that self-advocates are people who speak for themselves and who fight for their rights. Would you add that section around the rights and fighting for them? Is that part of what being a self-advocate is? I guess so, but I mean, I guess fight and understanding that we have these rights that like everybody else, but sometimes we have to, I guess, learn more about them than, I mean, I, I'm not, I guess learning how to be, maybe come back to that one. Well, I think, no, I think you're making your point and I may have used the wrong word by using the word fight because I know, again, I've been rereading your book in preparation for this interview and you, in your book said, you don't see yourself as a militant. And so I can understand why when I use the word fight that I was suggesting that. But what you did say though, is you believe in equal rights for everyone. And that if people with disabilities don't stand up for their rights, no one else will. And so I think that's what I heard you getting at here and maybe why you were a little cautious about associating that with the word fight. Did I kind of get in there? A little. But, you know, I mean, I think that everybody is learning how to speak up for themselves, but you have to understand the issues before you can say something. Yeah. Excellent. So... That's what I wanted to talk to you about. I don't think you invented this term, but I certainly feel like you're the number one ambassador for it, which is label jars, not people. Mm -hmm. Not people, yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I just heard you tell me that pretty clearly. Stop fussing around those labels, Al. We're just people. But why do people say we're all people. We're all trying to get by. I mean, like you're a man. Aaron's a man. I'm a woman. That's a label. So when people say the R word, I just go to myself, what are you talking about? You're labeled too. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Well, I wanted to go then, you know, to another area that you're well known for, and that. I describe you as the queen of plain language. <laughs> now, some of the listeners are not from Canada, so they might not use the royal term for that. But I certainly think that the plain language movement began with people like you and that it's actually gone into the legal profession as well. And it's impacted lawyers. And so any of you listening who now receive documents from lawyers that you can actually understand, that's plain language. And that started with the work that you began quite a long time ago, Barb. And I know you feel very, very strongly about this, about plain language. Why is that important? Do you have all day? I do. <laughs> I do. I think one of the reasons being is that I think Words are very powerful. And if we use complicated words, you're going to leave people out of conversation. And someone is talking in a complicated way, the person might shut down. I'm not sure how to 
I guess if if people need to write it in complicated language, like if people do two copies of say one in plain language and one in complicated language, why do two copies when you start off with one so everybody could read it? Like there might be a book. I have plenty of books and people think that I read them all. And I just like them because I like the title of it and I like to be able to understand it. But I don't understand half of them. But that doesn't mean I can't have them around for my enjoyment or for other people's enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Barb, thank you for describing this passion of yours around plain language and all of the important things. I think, uh, you know, the other day when you were talking about plain language to that group, you were talking about it as a kind of entryway into a different way of seeing everything, everything in the world. I thought that was pretty interesting, right? Like if we have to stop and think about different ways to communicate, and there was a lot of agreement that your way was better, right? That mm. often we're all just pretending to understand what we're talking about and to actually do that authentically. Mm -hmm. The next chapter book club in Vancouver, I guess the next book, if you continue, you'll get to be part of picking that. But I, I know that they went through a pretty big process of getting people to make suggestions around which book and they involved librarians. And, and it's a really interesting book club because prior to everybody going online, one of the things that has to happen in a next chapter book club is they have to read in public, right? So you have to go somewhere public and read together to be perceived as people with ideas who can communicate those ideas, right? So, yeah. So Barb, is from what Aaron has said, is there anything else that you, does that remind you of anything else you'd like to say about plain language? Not right now, no. Okay. So Barb, I'd like to talk a little bit about your involvement in a very, very famous court case, the case of Eve. And I know when I was interviewing you for my book, I thought that the achievement you'd be the most proud of would be going to the United Nations. And you said, not at all. What I'm really much more proud of is my involvement with People First and intervening in the Supreme Court of Canada to protect a young woman who's, whose name for the court case became Eve. Can you tell us a little bit about that situation, that case? That's a hard one because knowing where to start. Mm -hmm. I guess how we got involved was, I guess it changes with the weather, but anyway, is that with Eve, her mother, CAMR, or CACL, Canadian Association for the Mighty Remarkable, or Canadian Association for Community Living. I was on the board of CHL at the time. And I can remember, you remember Dave Vickers, a lawyer? I do. He and I were on the board from BC. And there was a group of that, I think, Someone from PEI, not the mother, but the one of, she wasn't on the board, but her, I think a friend of hers 
the parent of the she was on the board of CACL at the time, and she told us all about Eve's mother wanting to take take her to court and get her daughter sterilized. But what does court before? Um, not the there was something that happened. The mother wanted to take her not to the the court, but she wanted to take her. You remember that there was something. I think by the time you and People First and the Canadian Association for Community Living, now called Inclusion Canada, got involved, you wanted to support Eve and prevent her from being sterilized because there was no good medical reason for doing that. Um, more importantly, you wanted the intervention, you wanted to go to the Supreme Court as a group of self-advocates, as a group from People First. But I'm sorry, not everybody was involved with People First at the time. Okay. It was just people like, I don't think Harold was, on no it wasn't just people first members it was people that were sent they were on my committee the consumer advisory committee we found out about the court case because the in my mind the CACL there were parents and other people and they didn't feel they could do any no they wanted to have her they were agreeing with the mother. Yeah. So this was a big departure, I would say, where you had to step up as self-advocates and challenge the board of CACL and challenge parents and say, wait a minute here, we can't sterilize people for no good reason. And I think you told me once that, you know, you were roughly the same age as this woman who was called Eve, and that you realized that mm -hmm. if you weren't careful, the same thing could happen to you. So you decided to take the lead here with your consumer advisory committee. Do I have that right? You do. And the other thing is that there was one member on the committee. He was sterilized without his consent in an institution in Alberta. Mm -hmm. So that made it more that I wanted to do it like both of us, but there was other people too, but yeah. he and I and one other person were on the committee the whole time that we were talking about this. Like it didn't take just six months or something. It took a long time to get to court. Do you remember how long that was in total? It was years, wasn't it? Yeah, a long time. Long time, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight, nine years, I think from beginning to end? I think we talked about it a lot as a committee and it took a long time to get to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I might be fuzzy about that part. Yeah, the actual time is not important. It just was a long time, but you were able to keep going. Uh -huh. And so what gave you the strength to keep going through that, that long period? I don't know if it was the same back then, but I think 
looking back on it, it was because we felt that we needed to do something for Eve. Yeah. You know, not to have her sterilized or have something done to her that she didn't have a clue about. Yeah. So can you tell us what the result was, the final result? That no one should be sterilized without their consent. Yeah. And I think it's changed over the years that I think if it's for medical reasons, it's different, but I'm not sure. So this decision of the Supreme Court was unanimous. All nine justices of the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with you, Barb, and your friends and colleagues on the Consumer Advisory Committee that Eve and any other adult with a learning disability or an intellectual disability, they cannot be sterilized without their consent unless there is a good medical reason. But I think people are still being sterilized without their consent. Yeah. So it's still a worry, even though we have the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that later on, this decision of the Supreme Court of Canada went to the United Nations. And so when the UN, the United Nations, established their convention on the rights of people with disabilities, they included the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in their convention. How did that make you feel? Sorry, I don't remember that. Okay. It was a real milestone, this Eve case, because it was the first time ever that people with learning disabilities took a case to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I know in your book that you said that if people with disabilities don't stand up for their rights, no one else will. And so it's a kind of example, a really great example of why that's important. <laughs> you, you still feel good about that? Yes, yes. That's the proudest thing I've ever done. One of the things that you often talk about is that after that went public, because it was also the first time that people with disabilities perceived in public, the public space. And once that happened, people found out how many sterilizations had happened, right? And how many things that they thought they were getting a, you know, tonsillitis or, or something else, and they ended up sterilized. And Lilani Muir is one of the things you talk about her book. And that was really hard. That was like as hard as any of the rest of it, was that suddenly you had this whole population of people who had been sterilized without even knowing it yeah. until they started checking, right? Yeah. The other thing that I always think is really interesting when you tell these stories is that it sounds like the Supreme Court invited people with disabilities to come and present. And it was actually a really arduous process. They had to go in the back door. It was a narrow pathway. People were in wheelchairs that toppled over. They couldn't get up into the Supreme Court without going into the, the freight elevator, right? Mm -hmm. Which had this big sign that said, elevator for use only for freight and people with disabilities. <laughs> And then once they got into the room, they had to stand in the dark in the back, right? So sometimes this gets presented as a proud moment, but it was such a hard. It result. was a very hard 
hard process. Barb, I just have a couple more questions, you know, for you. And thank you for doing this for me. And I want to kind of step back from what we've just been talking about and just get some final thoughts from you on what's going on in the world today. And so I just, I'm curious because I think a lot of people see you as, as an elder, as a very wise person who has something to say about the way the world works and the way the world could work. And so I just wanted to ask you, what is, what's your hope for the future? Do you have a dream that you would like to see appear? She wants to support young people like myself. <laughs> and I, I don't want to be called a pro leader. Okay. No, but I think that the thing that I've really missed is having one to meet, like meeting like this in person. Like it's fine and dandy to do it on Zoom, but I mean, by the time this is all over, we'll all be amazed at how well we're doing on Zoom. But I mean, for me, I could do without it. I have my ways of communicating with people. I don't need Zoom. And I, because it gets frustrating having to learn all. Mm -hmm. I'm learning all about different things that my mind can't compute all the time. And I get mad at myself because I'm telling you things that, but anyway, is that I find Mm-hmm. Really, I get a block, and it's just day-to-day things sometimes, trying to remember, oh, you didn't do this. Why didn't you do this? And why are you doing this now? Like, I, I, I get so mad at myself. I want to do things. It's my health. It's the COVID. It's a lot of things. But I don't know if that makes sense, but for me, Right now, I just get so frustrated. Yeah. Do you listen to the or watch the news at all? No, because it that gets me more upset. And then people tell me stuff yeah. that's happening, and I'm going like to myself, why do I need to know that? Day 41 of COVID. I could have told you that. Yeah. Yeah. Even without the COVID, I don't watch the news much. It really upsets me, so I don't listen to it. Okay, okay. Here's my last question to you then. What would you tell a young person who's starting out in high school and who has some kind of a disability? Do you have some advice for them? Do what you want to do. Don't let people put barriers in the way. Like, talk to someone about it. Like, talk to... Like, I'd be willing to talk to young people and tell them, you know, don't just go to people that aren't disabled. Talk to people who have been through it. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I heard you say once in your life is that what you're the proudest of doing is things that people didn't think you could do. That that kind of summed up your life Mm -hmm. that I did things that people didn't think I could do. What I know, and you did it your way. I think there's a song about that. Was that written about you? My way. (laughs) Barb, you not only have done things your own way that people didn't think you could do, but you are still doing things 
your way. So I'm very happy that I had a chance to talk with you and share a little bit about you. So Barb, thank you for joining us today. Um, on, on our website, we will have details about how to get hold of you, information about how to get your book, and how to book you to be a speaker or an advisor to maybe do the kind of consulting that you do with your partner, Aaron, beside you. And I understand that you definitely expect your work to be properly compensated, that all people with disabilities should be paid for what they do, just like every other consultant. And so we'll make sure we have that information on the website. Thank you. This has been part six of The Power of Disability, a special six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. This series is curated and hosted by the community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alec Mansky. Theme music for The Power of Disability is There Is Nothing Wrong With Me, Epilepsy by Todd Osecki. The production of this series is supported by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Disease.